0: Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. These are the words of our Lord.
1: Well, it was, um, you know, Shakespeare who said, all the world is a stage, and men and women are but actors on it. I want to build our entire lesson tonight off of this simple premise that I think that's exactly right. Uh, there is a word that when James got to tonight while he was reading, your, your ear should have perked up because we've been hearing it over and over and over again in the book of Ephesians, and it's that word mystery. In other words, he talks about mystery being the very thing that describes marriage the best, but we've heard that word before. In other words, Paul has been saying that there is another mystery Which is the secret plan that God has put into effect from before the foundations of the earth? That God is doing something in the world. There is method to His madness. He's trying to say, and the idea of the mystery is, is that God is reuniting everything in the universe that's been split apart because of the rebellion of God's people. Does that make sense? And what I've been trying to say over and over again is that the most conspicuous place where that healing, that reuniting is taking place, is in the church. The strangest of things that we call the church. Yes, that place with the steeple on top where people go on Sunday mornings and where your parents made you go when you were little. God said, look inside that place and you'll see where I am working the most vividly to work out this mystery. Ah, But we find out tonight that there's actually a second place where God is also very conspicuously working out this plan. And you know what it is? It's in marriage. And so tonight we have to take a look at the way the Bible looks at marriage. Paul is actually going to go so far as to say that you really can't understand what marriage is without looking at the doctrine of the church. And you won't understand what God wants to do with the church until you understand your own marriages. Did you catch that? The two of them are always working together. And to be honest with you, I think this is one of the most interesting parts of the Bible's teaching on this. Because the Bible is saying that when you go about and do things in life that the rest of the world might look back and say are mundane, like getting married, I'm gonna go get married. Everybody gets married, right? We gotta find somebody that'll live with me for forever, death us do part, that whole thing. The world looks at that and says, huh, two people getting married. It's just a ceremony. But God looks and says, no, 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 no. You've gotta understand that when you engage in this institution that I have created for you, you're doing something so much more than just engaging in human tradition. You are putting on display, you are making an exhibit to the rest of the world about what I'm doing in the world. Did you catch that? God wants for our marriages to be the very thing that displays to the world what God is up to with the world. That means it's a big deal. (laughs) Our marriages are huge in that sense. In other words, for the Christian, his life is an exhibit. His life is not a string of mundane, bored experiences. His life is literally an exhibit. It's almost like a play, a play that you're putting on for the rest of the cosmos to see and to understand and to glorify what God is doing. All the world is a stage, and you and I are but actors on it. Marriage is a living drama, according to the Bible, that Christians put on for the world to show what their God thinks of them. That's what marriage is, and it's nugget. And I'll be honest with you, this is so far away from a secular view of marriage that we've got to start to unpack it. And some of the things that James read, I can imagine, were immediately offensive to you, but we're going to dive into them. First, I want to look at three things tonight, as as per usual. Number one, we want to look at who plays the role of the church in this drama. Answer, wives. We want to look secondly at who plays the role of the head of the church in this drama. That is husbands. And then finally, we want to get to the big finish, right? The big finale. All good plays have a big finale. And that is a profound union. And then maybe we'll try to draw a couple of implications for our own future and potential marriages when we do. First of all, let's take the hard part first, shall we? While I have an ocean of angry faces looking at me because it's like, Aha! I knew it! We finally got to the passage in the Bible that talks about all this submission stuff. You know, Les, you're getting ready to tell me as a woman that I'm supposed to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen (laughs) doing whatever it is that my husband tells me to do, right? I don't like this whole submission thing. Well, put the gun down for just a second while we take a look at this in another level. The word that Paul uses when he says submit there is actually a military term. It was a term that soldiers uh, would use in the military. And basically, you would ask yourself this question. What kind of army would there be if there were no generals and there were no foot soldiers? You would have chaos. You would have disorganization. You would have a lack of effectiveness and almost no army at all. And so what Paul is challenging you with here, future wives has, please hear me, has nothing to do with your inherent value as a woman. Please do not misread this as saying that. It is not saying that. Now, and the fact that there have been men throughout history, no doubt, who have abused this passage to do things that are wrong to women and to put them in places where they do not belong in God's plan, does not change the fact that that's not what Paul means. What Paul is saying here is that when a wife submits to her husband, she is getting behind her man. She is someone who is actually being his biggest fan. She is being someone who wants him to succeed and not to fail, who commits herself to saying, I am on your team because I think that you deserve it. So when the Bible looks at a woman, a wife especially, and says, be a woman, it means that you are to use your power, and it's distinctive, I would argue, to use your power to empower another. That's the idea. And instead, um, enable that person instead of sort of uh, replacing that person. Now look, let me see if I can illustrate how vital I think this is to understand, ladies. Because if Paul, what if Paul, just for a second, let's take a hypothetical here. What if Paul's command for a woman to submit is not so much for your interest or for your sort of subjection as it is something for his needs? (laughs) Bear with me. Roll with me on this one. What if Paul is saying something and requesting something of you that can only be done by empowering someone else? In other words, something in man that needs that. Because I think that what Paul is doing in verse 33 is he's summing up what he's teaching. We talked about this in freshman Bible study just yesterday. If you were passing through the windy grove, we were talking about this. Paul says when he sums up his argument, therefore, husbands must love their wives and the wife must respect their husband. I think that's the clue of what Paul means by submission. He is saying that there is something in the heart of a man that needs to know that you think that he's great. You want to, know that, you want to unlock the key to a man's brain, ladies? Here it is. He longs to know that he's significant. He longs to know that he is making a mark on the world that matters. He longs to know that the things that he engages in as a man are are changing things. There's significance in what he does. And so Paul is looking and saying, I need you to show respect to him so that you can unleash potentialities in him that he otherwise has no idea he's capable of. A man is woefully incomplete without someone who is cheering him on because he is built for that significance. Inside his heart is a desire to make that mark. Some of you have read these things. A number of years ago, There's a very popular book by um, John Eldridge called Wild at Heart. And though I have a handful of issues with that book, his fundamental premise is accurate. That for a man, there is an adventure out there. There is a mountain to climb. Or if you're Seinfeld, you know, Seinfeld used to have a whole deal on what's going on with men and about why it is that men want to go to the moon. <laughs> and, and what do they do as soon as they make it to the moon? They bring out their lunar rover, right? What a male idea. We're going to the, to the dadgum moon. Why? So we can drive around, you know? Here we go. Just kind of cruising. <laughs> Seinfeld's like, that's a man thing. And the funny thing is the Bible's known it for thousands of years. Look, a number number of years ago, there's a book written by William Harley called His Needs, Her Needs, where he identified the top five male needs and the top five female needs from presently married couples. Does that make sense? In other words, he interviewed men and said, what do you think you need the most in marriage? And he interviewed women and said, what do you think you need the most? All right, ladies, you ready? (laughs) Bear with me. Top five needs that a man said. This is marriage preparation, especially when we get to number one. Number one, can you, ladies, do you know what men said was number one? Sex. I'm not making that up. Bear with me for a second. And before your mind goes in certain ways, because I know for a lot of us, we're going to say, yeah, boys, they just kind of have that thing in their mind. It's a chemical. Uh, that They just can't stop thinking about it all the time. Set that aside. That's not what we're saying. The Bible is saying that in that place of the marriage bed, the sacred marriage bed, in the bonds of matrimony, there's a significance that a man feels in that place which empowers him. And that action of sexuality empowers him and secures for him the bonds of that relationship. And it's unique to a man in that sense. Secondly, companionship. Men said it's not just sex, it's companionship. I want to know that we can do things together. A man, your man wants to know that you enjoy coming along with him as he does stuff. I know it's irritating that he finds, you know, Saturday football from morning to evening uh, entertaining, but I tell you, there's something empowering in knowing that you'll join him with it. Um, there's something empowering about you wanting to be interested in the things he's interested in. Third, men said, thirdly, trust, to know that we're trusted, right? A man needs to know that you honor his efforts to provide. Why is it that men get so defensive about their driving? I know where I'm going, Right? Well, why don't you ask for some directions? Because I don't need directions. I know exactly where we are, right? A sense of trust. A man wants to know that he, can be compared, that he can be trusted with those things. Fourthly, domestic support. Men constantly looked and said, every time I go out into the world to deal with men, it's a contest. You do realize this, don't you? Last night, I had an illustration last night. Uh, I took Luke to his t-ball game, right? Uh, he's on the Phillies team this year. Go figure. Um and um he walked out there and he's got his brand new uniform on. Last night we got the uniforms. He's got the nice red jerseys, clean white pants that were clean for about 45 seconds before he got on the field. And he got his hat, you know, and he kind of got it fit just right. And he's out there with his glove, you know, kind of doing this. And he walks up to one of the other kids that's on his team. And I'm standing behind the dugout, just sort of watching it all happen, you know, waiting to be that doting father. And he walks over to this other kid on his own team, and I see him exchange a few words. I can't hear what they're saying. But the very next thing they do is this. Luke does this. He goes, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about? He's seeing if he measures up, right? (laughs) He's six years old. I'm taller than you. Look how much taller I am than you. (laughs) Ladies, every time a guy leaves the house, it's a contest, But there's something about coming home and knowing that he has a soft place to land that men say, that's number four on my list. Number five, admiration. (laughs) To know that you are in his biggest fan club. That you are someone who looks back and says, it doesn't matter, I think you can do it. When you believe in him, nothing can faze him. Now here's what's interesting about those five things. That's a secular study. That's not a religious Christian study. And yet, do you hear what all those things say? They say significance. The way Paul puts it is, is say, respect. It's not submission and stay down, never give your opinion, never open your mouth. It's a sense of empowering to say, I want to release things in him that he has of potential energy that otherwise he couldn't without me. Number one, playing the role of the church are wives. Number two, playing the role of the head of the church are husbands. Okay? Okay. Look, verse 25 gives us the man's role in this play, and that is Christ. The main way in which you're going to carry out your role, gentlemen, to women is by loving them. Now, if you don't mind, for a moment, will you set aside the sappy, smarmy definitions that you have of love where a man's like, well, sure, I love her. I told her when we got married, yeah, I love her. We're not talking about whether you've said it or whether or not you feel it. Love in the Bible is very particularly defined in that verse in this way. Just as Christ loved the church and what? Underline it, gentlemen, because it's your assignment. Gave himself up. That's it. You want to love your woman? (laughs) You want to actually love her in the way in which she's supposed to be loved? She wants for you to give yourself up. In other words, when the Bible tells a man to be a man... It's saying that you've got to go be like Jesus. What did Jesus do for the church? He died for the church. He loves the church. And he sacrificed for the church. He set his glory aside, taking on the form of a servant and submitting himself to her in loving her in that way. Look, and all I'm saying is, is this has the total effect of creating a cleansing and a cherishing of a woman. That's what Paul says there. To cherish means that you have the ability, gentlemen, to reorient that woman's self-image. Because to the degree that you are built to need that respect from a woman, she is built to need your self-sacrifice. Did you catch that? She is wired not so much as someone who wants to go out into the world and sort of make their mark and establish their significance, even though that's there. But she's much more of an inward creature in that she longs to draw people in to meaningful, nurturing connections. And the Bible says that when you love her in that way, by giving up your stuff, you can actually take the very foundations of her self-image and change them. Gentlemen, this is a huge deal. If she gets the sense that she is valued by you, only then will she recover from Old Miss. Gentlemen, please understand something. Every single day on this campus, when she wakes up in the morning on her dorm floor and when she walks out of the door of her, uh, of, uh, to class, every woman on this campus knows that her value is determined by her looks. It is the female narrative on this campus, period. Period. And she has scars from those looks that she's received, gentlemen, scars of the heart that can only be healed by a cherishing, by cherishing her in the way in which Jesus cherishes the church. You've got to get a vision for this. Look, in other words, what if the reason why Paul is commanding this is because there's something fundamental to a woman's nature that needs that love? That a woman needs to be granted the space to do what she does best, and that is to nurture and to protect. A woman's instincts are towards beauty and tenderness, the grant of security. So, so, so much so. Listen to Harley's top five female needs. All right, the ladies were busy scratching down their five. Gentlemen, why don't you copy down your five? Why don't you think about these things, right? Why don't you think about it for once? Number one, affection. She says affection. In other words, she needs to be made to feel that she is special, that she is valued. Gentlemen, you always protect the things that you value the most. You know where those things are of value at all times. You know where you parked your car. You know exactly where your golf clubs are if you're into that kind of thing. You know exactly what level you're on in your latest PlayStation game or Xbox game. The things that are precious to you, you keep up with. And a woman says, that's the first thing I need is that kind of affection. Number two, conversation. Conversation. She needs to know that she is important enough to you to let you in on your inner life. And I realize that for many of you, your inner life is either complex or void. (laughs) It's another Seinfeld bit where he stands up and says, "Um, Ladies, you want to know what guys are thinking? And they're all like, yeah. And he's like, nothing. I'm not thinking anything. Um, (laughs) She needs to hear what you did that day. She needs to be let in on your life, gentlemen. Thirdly, honesty and openness. Because a man is the one who's constantly going out, our responsibility is to allay her fears that when you go out, you're leaving for good. And honesty and openness relieves her of that fear and nurtures her through that. Fourthly, financial support. Now, look, this is where guys kind of roll their eyes. Ah, see, I knew it. I knew that she just wants money. She just wants to go out and go spend and shop. <laughs> Women be shopping. That's what they do. <laughs> look, 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 understand something. Women see money, gentlemen, as security. She knows that as long as she's financially taken care of, there's relative peace. Ladies, by the way, men see finances as a conquest, right? A man comes home with the bonus check and is like, "Uh uh-huh, you see this? Ta-da. And the woman's like, oh, thank God we can pay the bills and takes it and walks away. That's the way it works. And number five, number five, family commitment. Gentlemen, she needs to know that the family will always come first before your job, before your interests, before all of the things that you might put up against that. Look, in other words, running through all of those concerns, do you hear it? You can sum it all up by saying, love. That's what it means to love her. This is what she's built to have. And gentlemen, there is something deeply precious about what you can release in a woman. When you die to your hunting weekends. (laughs) Did I touch a nerve? (laughs) as laughter ripples throughout the crowd. Now, some of you are saying, oh, that's easy for you to say, Les, you don't hunt. (laughs) I don't condone violence, right? When you die to your computer, that's mine. When you die to your career, when you die to your interests, all in the name of loving her, that's it. To sacrifice, to give stuff up. That's how she'll know. And that's how you'll release her ability to nurture. Look, y'all, here's the fundamental premise. What if men were fundamentally created to need respect and wives were fundamentally created created to need love? But Paul knows that because we're sinful creatures, that will not be natural to us. And so he commands to what he knows will be our weakness, that men, will it will not be natural to a man to love. It will not be natural to a woman to respect. But that's the very thing that we need to work on, and that's why he gives the command. Now, Look, y'all, lest you be weighed down by the burden of these commands, and I'll be honest with you, as a married man for 15 years this summer, okay, thank you, thank you, oh yeah, whatever. Um, I can tell you that there is something profoundly hard about that. Those little commands, as nice as they seem now, and you're thinking, when will it be me? I promise you. (laughs) Are a challenge. They're a huge challenge. And you cannot lose the purpose of it all. And that's what I want to finish with tonight. Why? What is God doing in this? And I hope that you hear that the heart of this passage is in verse 31 and 32. You know that's a quote, don't you? That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. To show exactly what Paul is talking about. And to be honest with you, the picture is clearly sexual. It's a sexual imagery. Man and a woman becoming one flesh. And yet, Paul says, there's something more than sex that's there. There's a profound mystery at the heart of it all. By the way, this is the only place in the book where Paul actually pronounces the depth of what he's saying as being profound. This mystery, he says, is profound. His mind is blown by thinking about this. So here's the question. What is it about marriage marriage that has captured Paul's imagination? C.S. Lewis has a word for this in his Space Trilogy. Uh, Most people are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. That's his most popular stuff. But C.S. Lewis actually wrote a little bit of kind of weird science fiction that I read many years ago. In one of those books, C.S. Lewis pictures a, a spaceship that goes to the planet Venus And on the planet Venus, God is actually starting again with a brand new Garden of Eden. And there he has a brand new Adam and Eve. But the interesting thing about what happens on Venus is, or Paralandra as he refers to it, is that the man and the woman don't fall into sin and temptation. They don't fall. They don't sin against God. They submit to his leadership. And C.S. Lewis goes on to describe in this amazing some of the most amazing prose that I've ever read about, the day, about what went on between this new Adam and this new Eve as they lived in submission to the great God who created them. Because they understand, and we understand as Christians, that the God of Christianity, as I've said time and time again this semester, is himself a trinity. Three persons, one essence, all combined together in a perfection of community. Each member of the Trinity living in the midst of perfect mutuality, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-existent, self-sufficient, joyfully delighting in each other from before the foundations of the earth. And all that's been going on so that reality itself is indelibly printed with this triune God. The Father is the author of salvation. The Son is the accomplisher of salvation. And the Spirit is the applier of salvation. All of them working together in perfect synchronicity to carry out God's plan in the universe. C.S. Lewis calls it the great dance. And here's the beauty of it all. And every now and then, Ginger and I start to get we get the littlest, weirdest glimpses of it. That Paul is saying that when a man and a woman unite together, both on the marriage bed and in the daily interactions of their lives, they begin to see something where the two of them begin to work together in a beautiful, glorious mutuality where honestly it starts to get hard to figure out where one ends and one begins. This is the closest that Ginger and I have ever gotten to this, and I won't lie to you that it's just weird. There are strange times in which Ginger and I, there's no pattern to it. We'll be driving in a car. We'll be sitting on the couch watching television. We'll wake up in the morning, and inexplicably share with each other what we're thinking and the other person will look and be like all right that's weird because I was just thinking about that same thing and we both try to go through the files in our mind of being like is there a reason why we would be thinking about that tiny little things happens only every now and then a few times a year to Ginger and I utterly creeps us out I'll be honest with you (laughs) but I think those are the drops those are the places that God looks and says, I am longing for you to know something. Something that is so profound where the two of y'all are intimately connected in a bond that no one can understand. But at the same time, as you are so intimately connected, you are never more yourselves. You are never no more manly and you are never more womanly than when you find yourself in this bond. Whew. The Christian view of marriage, in my opinion, (laughs) completely sets it apart. It sets it apart from every single world religion so that there's a handful of things that we can draw from this. Can I offer just a couple of suggestions in closing for what this means? Number one, I want you to notice that in many ways this discussion can help unlock some of your struggles with your sexuality. The Bible says that what's going on with you sexually, even in its perversions, even in the things that right now, as you think through, there is a load of shame coming up inside of you, as you consider perhaps your sexual past, as you consider your sexual present, or as you consider your sexual future. For many of us, there's abject confusion. There's struggles with pornography with homosexuality, with past abuses. This room is too big to not have to deal with the question of date rape. It's that common. When we come to look and to delve into what is going on with us sexually, like we said last week, the Bible says there are core commitments of who you are as a man and who you are as a woman that are undergirding those things. And instead of simply confessing the thing in itself and begging God for either forgiveness or relief, it may be that we need to go deeper than that and ask harder ask harder questions. That's my first point. Second application is this. What then is the function of Christian marriage? The reason why God creates marriage is so that when our little children come along, <laughs> and they are born and they begin to live in this world, and they're playing with their friends And their friends approach them and and, and say, tell me about this Christianity that you follow. Tell me about this God that you worship. Paul is saying that what he would like for our children to say is, is to say, well, I'm not sure, but you know what? I want you to go watch how my dad loves my mom. And I want you to go watch how my mom loves my dad. Because there's something there that God tells me I can look at and see how he feels about me. He said in a bath of guilt. (laughs) Look, y'all, there is something beautiful in what God has created in marriage. And this is my final sort of point of application. I have to be honest with you, nothing comes close to this. There is no world religion that comes close to this high of view of marriage. Honestly, <laughs> people get married for all kinds of reasons. Economic advancement. I married well, right? Utilitarian concerns. Well, I need a wife to kind of help get me on the right track. There's all kinds of reasons, but nowhere except in Christianity, except in the face of Jesus, Do you see something as high as this? That God says, if you want to know what it is that I have won in my son Jesus with you, let me give you marriage. It's kind of like this, but only better. See that. I don't think there could be a better invitation than that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are multiple issues with this. Father, for most of the people here in this room, they're not married, and we struggle to sort of grasp at what you mean and what you have built into this. Many of us have false views of marriage. Many of us have trumped up views of marriage. Many of us have incredibly cynical views of marriage. And so, Lord Jesus, we are asking that you would give us the grace of taking the best of our thoughts, the most biblical of our thoughts. And training them towards you so that we can see the, the, if nothing else, the mere anticipation that we have to be united to someone meaningfully in that way and translate them into your face so that we might see joy in you as well. Father, if maybe tonight we could catch that vision, we would walk away from this place transformed. And so would you do that in us? Would you change us for the fact that we considered your word and the beauty of marriage? For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.